and welcome to The Inoculation. I'm your co-host. My name is Eva von Schaper. I'm hosting this podcast together with Daiva. Hello, my name is Daiva Repeczkaite, and our guest today is Alexander Harasimenko, who is a researcher at Oxford Internet Institute in the UK. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself first and about your research, just so that our listeners can get an idea of what you work on? I'm uh, Alexander Olesi Razimenko. I'm a researcher at Computational Propaganda Project at Oxford Internet Institute in the United Kingdom. This project I belong to studies many different areas that might be described as computational propaganda, things related to all type of conspiracy theories, attempts to influence and manipulate elections, uh, manipulate civil society, somehow spread disinformation, misinformation, and obviously one of the key questions many people are asking now, including people in the governments, in uh, NGOs, in uh, other types of organizations and institutions, is how to make vaccination more successful story and uh, that's why since summer we've been researching all types of narratives the dow vaccination success of vaccines and uh, in general what we called well, anti-vaccination thinking we have a number of research projects that currently ongoing about that topic try to understand for instance who spreads those narratives and thinking that can be described as anti-vaccination or anti-vax as it's been traditionally called, we look at both NGOs, prominent individuals, as well as foreign states, foreign authoritarian states that since recently or not recently uh, developed this habit of interfering in affairs of other countries in order to disrupt them, specifically focusing on narratives, for instance, that appear in, in, in state-backed or state-sponsored media organizations owned or controlled by Chinese and Russian governments in five languages, I believe. This one strand, another strand is understanding how anti-vaccination thinking spreads across social media. It's most currently one of the most rich information environments that many people used to get used to get information. That's what we're looking at. We also look at how those people who can be described as anti-vax leaders or anti-vax communities, how they make money, how they sustain themselves, and it all, of course, results in both uh, research outputs as well as sort of recommendations. We also track most popular anti-vaccination narratives that emerge on social media across the UK, the country where the institution is based. Uh, we track uh, around, I believe, five main strains, main anti-vaccination ideas that dominate this space. We also measure the volume, the audience, the engagement levels with that type of narratives over time, basically every day. And I saw somewhere in one of your profiles that you have both a computer science and a political science background. Is that correct? How do you use both of these uh, skill sets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> so computer science is my first uh, university education, but I use this sort of first background, first education to apply different types of methods that I use in, in computer science in order to, to understand, to answer questions about society and policy. So is there one point where you started to look at vaccination as a disinformation topic? Well, anti-vaccination thinking exists since vaccines emerged, but obviously this narrative has been re-enhanced and re-emerged in social media 
all the time. Especially in the U.S., uh, there is a lot of communities that advocate anti-vaccination thinking, and they might have been there for many years, decades, and then once Internet emerged, they joined, they came, and uh, that's been since forever, <laughs> since 19th century. But on the Internet, obviously, all types of people joined. Was there one point where you said, oh, I'm seeing a higher volume of posts on the topic of vaccines? Just recently, they became more prominent, obviously, because of the pandemic, because of the uh, more interest to health. But I would say before summer 2020, there was almost no discussion of COVID-19 vaccination, except for one very big narrative related to the control in society, this idea, conspiracy theory that <laughs> vaccines being developed in order to chip everyone and in that way, control everyone's minds. But I saw that, you know, earlier papers have to do with movements, with uh, social media and authoritarian states. So what was the entry point for you to start researching vaccines and health misinformation? Well, uh, yeah, indeed, I, I've been studying social movements for a long time, and I still study them. And in fact, I approach anti-vax communities or conspiracy theorist communities as social movements or as movements, not necessarily social, all types of movements. So organizations of people very loosely, very much organized according to the current sort of rules of organizing of uh, groups that emerge online, mostly exist online, never see each other very often. In that respect, they're very similar to less visible groups that, that exist in authoritarian states, because some of the groups that spread misinformation, they try to avoid attention, they try to avoid sanctions and uh, all types of policies and laws that try to prevent the spread of misinformation. In that respect, they're similar. But when it comes to <laughs> vaccine stories, yeah, they, we just realized that it's important to study this specific topic due to the COVID pandemic. So we've been asking ourselves if there's something similar related to the measles vaccine. Similar in what respect? Vaccine hesitancy around the measles vaccine has been a very big topic in Europe, as you know. So just looking at, let's call them pre-COVID times, have you ever seen anything similar regarding measles vaccines? Do we have anything coming from the main actors? Did you see Russia trying to use vaccination as a political topic? Have you seen misinformation flowing from Russia to populist parties in Germany saying, for example, vaccination is bad? First, well, obviously, we're looking and focusing on COVID-19 uh, anti-vax stories. We have colleagues who've been researching anti-vax thinking before COVID, and they say that, yes, indeed, there were narratives about measles, about other disease and the types of vaccines before COVID on social media, discussions of them. But it looked like they mostly emerged in the U.S., from the U.S. context. In terms of narratives, we and communities, we didn't look beyond English-speaking countries. So Canada, Australia, US, their focus is UK. And we found pre-COVID-19 communities, organizations that propagated anti-vax thinking in each of those countries. But most of them existed in the US. But over the recent years, this thinking been spreading further. They, uh, those communities became quite well-established and they learned how to advance their thinking through entertainment products, such as films, the whole sequences of films about vaccination that 
filmed by those communities. Entertainment products, books, there are many, many of them on Amazon available, for instance, for everyone to buy. Other types of TV shows, just blogs, ranging from very boring ones where a person just sits in their chair and reads the quite scientific paper for one or two hours. People watch it. Two very entertaining, very fast-moving uh, people who might be described as influencers, internet celebrities-style individuals who adapted this style of spreading content, who are present both on TikTok, Instagram, as well as on more text-based platforms such as Facebook, though they've been gradually deplatformed. But again, we don't really look much into this pre-COVID era in terms of volume, in terms of dynamics, uh, I'm afraid not. And uh, regarding states... Foreign states, I don't think we've seen anything, anything related to that uh, before COVID. In one of your papers, you distinguished between conspiracy communities and political communities. So when you were analyzing the data, did you specifically code for these types? For example, uh, where would you put QAnon that many people are talking about? I think you really rather distinguished two main types of origins of conspiracy thinking communities. One of them, one of these types, is more sort of established that operates within the boundaries, almost close to sort of mainstream discussion, thinking and social ideas. For instance, they normally do not emphasize outrageously conspiratorial ideas. To the contrary, they very often just uh, emphasize importance of things like Freedom of choice, when it comes to vaccination, for instance, censorship and freedom of speech uh, regarding policies of some digital media platforms and mainstream media that feature or not, decide to feature or not those communities. Uh, they emphasize the more positive agenda. They, they registered as NGOs, as charities in the UK or other similar statuses in other countries. So they, they kind of establish they exist within sort of mainstream society. But other type, you mentioned QAnon, this is this type of hidden, less visible, more aggressive, but also more active communities that very often consist of semi-anonymous people, or pseudonymous, they don't reveal their names sometimes, uh, they might have many accounts on social media, on the same platform. In terms of their narratives, they might apply all type of quite harsh conspiratorial ideas, like I mentioned about COVID and the control and the vaccination and control and chipping. Or uh, another <laughs> great example is 5G network that been linked by those communities to spread COVID and so on. Uh, so those communities sort of they exist in small, what been often called echo chambers. They've been isolated on the internet. Sometimes it's not easy to find them. But if you're not what you're looking for, you can find them using hashtag, using keywords, not recent vaccination, but very specific keywords. And once you found them, you, well, you, people who are interested, they can find many people who would share their ideas. So yeah, I mean, there are those two types. That's what we, I think, been looking at. We are mostly looking at those second type. At least I am more interested in second type because how they spread information is most curious. We don't really know yet how they emerge, how they spread, why they're so successful sometimes, and sometimes even influential in mainstream politics, like it's happening now in the U.S. Is there a way to know from your data how prominent these communities are? Yes, there is a way. There is a way to see how prominent, but it's very approximate. We calculate two measures. One is engagement, another one is audience. Audience is all people who can potentially see content engagement 
is what is the level of engaging with content by this community, by this website, by this provider of information on specific platform in form of comments, likes, shares, and all type of other sort of clicks and movements people might do when they see a piece of content. Yes, it's there is the way, and but they function in a similar way to, in general, to political conspiracies. It's been also changing over time, and recently they kind of, they decreased their audiences on, on mainstream media, social media, because platform took steps to somehow remove them, some of them. But when it comes to engagement, people like to engage with this type of content, similarly to political misinformation as well, because it's more sensational. Do we know why people like this kind of information? Why do people respond to misinformation the way they do? Yeah, there's some research, but it's not conclusive. So there are many reasons. One of them is the way it's written, the way the story is told. And those stories often told in a similar way as like Daily Mail, this type of paper, Sun Papers, uh, how they tell stories sensationally. Second reason is very often people already have predisposed ideas, biases, and they search for confirmation of their biases and their ideas, and they find them on those platforms. And anti-vax community is a great example of this type enhanced and elevated engagement levels compared to people who share the idea that they that vaccination is in general a good idea, a good program, good policy. So those people who share this kind of good policy thinking about vaccination, they, what they think about vaccination very often is they don't really think much. In fact, they don't know much. So they don't really follow. They don't try to find confirmation of their thinking about that because they just come and feel safe and feel no need in being worried about. But there are certain categories of people. Either they believe they've been affected by a vaccination programs, so maybe who have or expect children, who know someone who's been affected by vaccination negatively as they believe. Those people might be looking for more information, might be looking for communities, for ideas, for places to share their grievances or their beliefs or their biases very often. And they found those, they find that content, they find that uh, communities where this content shared. And that's why perhaps one of the reasons why people uh, like it more often, <laughs> share it more often, because sort of they are driven by ideas, they are driven by identity. One of their identities is this either uh, kind of uh, freedom of choice, freedom of speech, identity, what is quite kind of popular across certain U.S. Uh, categories in population. And when it comes to Western Europe, perhaps just worried about health consequences. This is what reinforces uh, those high engagement levels quite often. If we look at states like, say, China or Russia who engage in misinformation, what is their goal? Ultimately, what do they want to achieve? In terms of China, China uh, as a state, it's more interested in its own image across the globe, and it's not that much interested in spreading misinformation about what's happening, for instance, in Western Europe, United States. What they might be interested in is sometimes they spread misinformation about their own country or regions. They want to have some influence. For instance, recently they called uh, uh, coup in Myanmar the radical reshuffle of the government, the radical reshuffle of the government when people have been imprisoned. It's very radical. What happens to Russia, obviously, it's more active on that stage and it's, it propagates certain narratives in many languages using media it controls, RT 
Sputnik, TASS, and other outlets. Their goal very often is to spread disbelief in democratic systems, enhance and engage exactly those people who I mentioned, those people who might believe in misinformation, disinformation, who seek uh, answers to their grievances in conspiracy theories. And Russia found that it might be rewarding for its foreign policy to engage with this type of communities with more radical organizations, with more radical groups, such as far-right groups or far-left groups. And it's been doing it something like that in relation maybe to far-left for a long time. There's a, so- a Soviet Union, Russia believes, continuation of Soviet Union, it looks like these days. But I think key goal of Russia and similar authoritarian, aggressive authoritarian countries is to spread disbelief and um, somehow damage democratic institutions and trust in democratic institutions in the West. For China, it is just to enhance its image using what it calls soft power and recently sharp power. When we were drafting our application for this project, there was no COVID yet. And I was reading the coverage of Russia Today and the narrative that emerges from there was that Russia is very orderly, very organized state where people just trust science and everything is fine. And meanwhile, poor, poor American anti-vaxxers don't have their freedom of speech. And Europe is just such a mess. There's measles everywhere. Did this kind of narrative feature prominently in your data? Did the English-speaking accounts you study engage with state-controlled accounts? Did they share these materials at all? Clearly, yes. There is type of narratives you mentioned on RT, yes, because they provide platform for conspiratorial thinking. But regarding whether anti-vaxxers like or not, the stories, the Russian RT stories, that is, we still need to look at. Can't say really, right? So what we've seen a couple of times, and this is something that we've not seen with measles or childhood anti-vaccination sentiment is a link to the Holocaust. Is this something that you think is being spread by Russia? Who is the biggest player in this field? Yeah, I, I heard about that. We analyze also German, uh, RT in German, Sputnik in German. When it comes to English RT, I didn't see this type of things. We just actually, uh, we are still conducting our systematic analysis of what uh, Russia today, what Sputnik said. And uh, so far, anecdotally, no, but it might be. When, and we'll see, say, in one month when we finish uh, this analysis. On that note, you mentioned in the beginning that your research also concerns how leaders make money. Do you have any preliminary insights? Do they use Patreon? Do they use PayPal? Do they have some calls for action? How does it work? Yeah, so donation. Donation is the main way to make money to monetize content that might be described as anti-vaccination content. PayPal, indeed, is one of the key instruments. To collect donations, very easy. Is it to connect? Is it to link? Is it to send funds? Other way, well, they range there. We found, I think, around 13 different types of monetization, ranging from this very simple donation to selling education courses or selling access to legal service that might help you to, for instance, sue the government for alleged damage to your health that a person or a community might link to vaccination program. So many, many different ways to make money. People make money using 
cryptocurrency. I mean, uh, donating and exchanging money using that sort of hidden instrument. It's kind of growing now for those communities to avoid perhaps certain attention. Selling information products, uh, selling access to webinars, recently also important. There are festivals, there are kind of whole sort of several days events, especially before pandemic, for anti-vax believers. So, yeah, yeah, there is quite a lot of uh, ways. Do you see corona anti-vaxxers having the same goal of financial gain? Hmm. So, you see, as we're looking at communities or individuals, many of whom established themselves before pandemic, I would say it's vice versa. They just employed and now emphasize this topic of COVID, yes, rather than other way around. So they might discuss extensively the idea, for instance, that vaccination, vaccine is damaging to people's DNA. They might spend a lot of time talking about that. And next, just like news organization, if a new thing arrives, for instance, um, someone died after taking vaccine, they would take this news and discuss it. So I would say they just follow the agenda, they follow the news stream rather than focused on COVID, COVID, COVID. So we don't really distinguish much in that respect. New emerged communities and old communities that existed before, I would say existed communities just been reinforced and get more followers perhaps and get more engagement, get more interest from broader public once pandemic started. So they benefited. It looks like they benefited from COVID-19 pandemic. Was it also translated into financial terms? Did they start creating more diverse income streams? Diverse, yeah, yeah, obviously diverse, yeah. As I mentioned, like many different ways to monetize. Some don't monetize at all. Many of those people, I think, they just use funding in order to sustain, to continue their advocacy. But some, they just make money through selling products, such as health remedies. There's prominent network of online shops that sell coconut oil. This network created many shops in different languages, and it also contains one small website that just features anti-vax ideas. It doesn't sell anything. It just says that vaccination is bad, and then it has a link to another website where products are sold. So their narrative is, look, vaccination is damaging to your health, but we have a cure, we have another way to maintain health, to get cured, or just to stay healthy, just go on our website, buy our coconut oil, be fine forever. Forget about vaccination. This is kind of this type of thinking we saw, we've seen several times when it comes to health products, or rather alternative health products. Do you think that these anti-vax communities that are being used right now to transport anti-vax messages, do you think that they could be used in the future to transport anti-democratic messages? Absolutely. They're all linked. I'm absolutely sure that COVID pandemic already has caused huge disruption to political and social systems across the world. We would see emergence of new types of political groups, political organizations uh, that would be more disruptive than what we previously called populist. They would be more potentially damaging to democracy because people would have huge level of satisfaction, uh, disillusionment, and this all might be transformed and in fact channeled by those newly emerged actors who would channel grievances of people using outrageous ideas and thoughts and narratives. And they would, some of them might try to attack political system. In fact, that just it happened in the US. I think events in DC are direct consequence of pandemic 
this pandemic disruption and uh, this emergence of new types of political actors, and U.S. just uh, the first the first case of it. And in fact, uh, well, even beyond that, I think even in non-democratic countries, it's in an opposite uh, situation. In protests in Thailand and Belarus, I think they also somehow caused a link to this pandemic, but it's opposite effect, right? So old elites being challenged by this pandemic. So would it be correct to say people have been radicalized by these ideas and maybe more willing to accept anti-democratic views? It potentially can lead to different situations, but most probably in, in Western democracies it might be some be damaging to, to democracy, while in authoritarian countries... In Russia, it might be an opposite. They demand democracy, and very often authoritarian countries, it might lead to sort of a bit of more democracy rather than less. But it it might be an opposite. In fact, for instance, in Belarus, it was an opposite. Each country's trajectory in terms of unemployment, say unemployment, whether there is any uh, unemployment programs, what is the level of support for people who lost job or who've been out of job for a long time. Obviously, it's it's there is a long-term link between economic troubles and populist ideas, but what I'm thinking, and it's, since I, I sort of, I started organization, political organization, I think what might happen, you asked me a question about COVID, right? COVID and the COVID-related groups and organizations and conspiracies that emerged during this period. I think that those groups uh, now just gained audience, and over time, they might be hijacked by different actors, not necessarily those people who established them. For instance, anti-vax groups might with time, change, uh, say, the speaker. And they might be united around, mobilized around a different idea. Some radical idea, some out, another outrageous conspiracy. Like in the U.S., it was a conspiracy of stolen election. Right? Similar thing can happen in Germany. Who knows what it can be? I have no idea, really. But it can be anything. The damage here, the potential damage, is the emergence of audiences that are united in echo chambers on Internet, not necessarily on big platforms, but on alternative platforms like Telegram, and those committees are already there, and they're waiting for disruptive political actors to come and hijack them. This might happen. Not necessarily going to happen, but this is, I think, key damage, because those people are ready. They already have those grievances I mentioned. They might be channeled, channeled by populist speakers into whatever type of ideas possible. Thank you very much for this extremely interesting interview. If you have any comments, you can always email us at theinoculation at gmail.com. And to make sure you never miss our stories and conversations, you can follow us on Twitter at tinoculation. That's T like tango. Our Instagram is the underscore inoculation. And you can also follow us individually. I'm at Eva Von Schaper. That's S-C-H, all in one word. And I'm at diva underscore hadiva. Our research is supported by journalismfund.eu. Thank you for listening and bye for now. Bye.